people of God, you do not walk alone. I don't care if your marriage is in shambles. I don't care if you were diagnosed with a terminal illness. You are not walking alone. Whatever it is, Jesus is there with you, individually catered to your circumstances and situations. Why? Because it's the exact same reason Richard said several weeks ago. The one who knows you the best loves you the most. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning, as we open up God's Word, His communication to us, it's an honor to stand before you. Uh, Before we go any further, let us stop and pray. Father, in Your Word, we find all that is necessary for salvation. Uh, You have revealed everything You want us to know about You to us in these 66 books. And so, Father, today, as we seek to address an issue that every person in this room will face, maybe currently, maybe recently, or maybe right around the corner, we look to You, Lord, and You reveal how You deal with us in the midst of these um, struggles, in the midst of this issue, Father. So, God, illuminate Your Word in our hearts today. Press us closer to You through this time, Lord. In Christ's name that I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 11 this morning. But before I even begin, I I do want to uh, issue a disclaimer. This is the first time I have ever preached in a robe. Uh, So if I do fall, go easy on me. Uh, Don't don't make too much fun of me, please. Uh, I know that'll show up on Instagram since students are here, but um, I have self-esteem issues too. So... (laughs) John chapter 11 is where we're going to be at this morning, and this is a long passage that I'm going to condense for us a bit. We have almost 44 verses to cover. I promise I will not read all of those to you. I know you want to get out of here for lunch. Uh, But this is a familiar passage. If you've spent any amount of time in church, if you grew up in children's ministry and you remember the felt board, or if you've simply read through the gospel of John, this, this passage stands out to us. It's miraculous, it's different, it's big. And in it, I feel that it reveals something about God that we don't realize. Or or maybe we know it cognitively, We, we have it up here, but we don't walk in it, we don't live that way. I think this passage pulls back the curtain a little bit on God's heart. And so this morning, I want to, for the sake of time, read verses one through four. And then I'm going to say a sentence or two, fill in a detail or two, and then we're going to skip down to 32. Is that fine with everyone? Because I'll I'll read the whole thing if you need me to. (laughs) Here we go. Verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And then before we skip down to verse 32, what occurs is Jesus waits two days. He receives word that Lazarus has indeed passed away. And he starts making his way towards Bethany and then 32 occurs. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man had kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Several years ago, uh, Nationwide Insurance released a series of commercials. I believe they might have gone viral, uh, but they, they were clever. And in these commercials, there was a situation where someone would be going around a daily routine. They might be driving to work or getting back from a vacation or selling a vehicle, whatever it may be. And in a moment's notice, things would go terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, In fact, one that really stood out to me, a middle-aged man was driving to work in his car. His car was by no means showroom quality. It was a little bit older. And his radio goes out. Now, if any of you have ever ridden in a car where the radio goes out, that's a serious issue because you start hearing noises that might have been there for 100,000 miles, but all of a sudden you hear them for the first time and you think your car is about to blow up. And some of you are shaking your heads because you have suffered through that. And so as a male, uh, he does what any male with any kind of mechanical inclination does. The first line of defense is always what, men? Blunt force trauma. You hit it. And so he slaps the radio. Nothing. So, as you go down your mental checklist, well, I hit it, so what do I do next? The, the very next logical step is, well, let's hit it again. And so he hits it a little bit harder this time. And then finally, right before you go to a mechanic, every man comes to a crossroad in their minds, and there's one last thing you can do. And this is, this is a desperation move. It's, um, you know, it's after you Google it, and you hit it one more time. And so he hits it. And finally, the radio comes back on. Third time's a charm, right? Everything's good in the world. The, the ride is normal now. It's another day in paradise. And then the very next scene, all four tires blow off the car. <laughs> Some of you might be going through that right now. And then the tagline flashes across the screen. Life comes at you quickly. And, and surely these, these commercials, they capitalize on hyperbole. They're exaggerated. They're extreme. That doesn't really happen to people. But anyone who's not an infant in this room knows life comes at you quickly. Anyone who's had time to stop and think about how life plays itself out from day to day knows the unexpected has a way of popping up. Things have a way of going terribly wrong in a moment's notice. All of us have gone to our vehicles after a long day of work and we just want to get home and the car doesn't start. Or you think everything's going well in your life and you find out your child's in trouble at school or maybe with the law. And some of us have been diagnosed with terminal illnesses at 40. And maybe your spouse uttered those terrible, haunting words to you, I don't love you anymore. The unexpected has a way of hitting us quickly. Quickly. 
In fact, if we were all honest, and if we just thought about this for a second, everything we know can be changed with one phone call. All it takes is one phone call, and everything, every bit of comfort that you have, every bit of security in your life can change in a moment's notice. In our text this morning, life happens quickly, and several parties are affected by the ripple. A man named Lazarus falls sick, and several days later, he passes away. Jesus receives word, and I just want to condense this story for us. I really do want to encourage you, though, when you get home, go read John chapter 11. It is a beautiful, beautiful chapter. It teaches us so many things about God that I'd love to spend time highlighting all of them, but I can't. Jesus and his disciples are across the Jordan River. They receive word that Lazarus is sick and that they want Jesus to come right now to heal him. They know he can heal him. They've seen him do miraculous things. And instead of dropping everything, Jesus waits two days. Instead of dropping everything that he was doing, instead of immediately going and being the, you know, the knight in shining armor and riding in and saving the day, Jesus waits two days. It seems that he's on his own schedule. Everyone thought he should come immediately, but he waits. But he, he says something interesting in verse 4. He says this. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son might be glorified through it. And in a few verses, we learn that Lazarus does indeed pass away. Was, was Jesus off his game? Was he exhausted? Did he need some sleep? Was the, was the line from God not coming in clear? What's going on here, Jesus? Was he wrong? It seems that Jesus is assuring people of something they're not going to believe. And when he arrives at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he is greeted with a landscape of brokenness. Why? Because Mary and Martha just suffered the searing loss of losing their brother. They are feeling the weight of a person they loved, a person they did life with, a person that they held closest to their heart, passing away. They are dealing with the effects of a world that has degenerated from God's plan. They're feeling the effects of sin, and their hearts are heavy. There's weeping. There's sorrow. No one's happy. No one's excited. People are hurt, and there's pain some of you, some of your hearts are heavy right now. Some of you are going through big life situations. In this room today, there's estrangement from relationships. Maybe a loved one has passed away. Maybe there's divorce. Maybe there's breakups. Or maybe there's depression and hopelessness. Or maybe, maybe there's a lot of little things in your life that just keep building Maybe you're scared to get out of bed every morning because you have no idea what else could possibly go wrong. But something always does. Suffering is a reality of our lives. And, and this isn't the happy message. Uh, this isn't a, you know, hey, let's, this is exciting. And I feel like in some sense I'm up here going, welcome to church. But there's something beautiful about this text. And I, I want to I pull back the curtain a little bit or, or show you something that God brings out. Jesus sees the devastation. He sees the hurt. And then we get to a peculiar verse that not a lot of people know what to do with. And it took a lot of studying. Verse 35. Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible. Jesus wept. 
seeing the devastation of Mary and Martha, seeing the tomb with a stone rolled in front of it, which is surely foreshadowing of things to come, feeling the loss of his friend, Jesus weeps. He he breaks down. He gets emotional. This is one of two times in the Gospels where we are explicitly told that Jesus weeps. The first time, he weeps for Jerusalem's recalcitrance. They were not willing to repent. The second time, he weeps for his friend Lazarus, and he weeps for his friends Mary and Martha. He sees the effects of a fallen world, and he breaks down. And in fact, in the English, it really tames this, this idea. It really pulls back the ramifications. The Greek verb there to, actually means to quake with rage. It means for your intestines to be cut up. Some of you know what that's like. To be in the midst of such suffering to be in so much hurt, to see so much brokenness that it transcends words, that words just don't do it justice, that talking about it doesn't help anything. And there's this deep soul groaning, this, ugh. It's almost like getting punched right in the heart. Jesus feels it. Does anybody find that weird? I mean, does anybody think it's bizarre that Jesus is weeping If I'm being honest, I I do. Why? Because he's God. Like, he knows exactly how this is going to play out. In fact, four times, verse 4, verse 11, verse 15, verse 23, Jesus tells people, he's not going, this is not his final state. I'm going to raise him back to life. This is not the end for Lazarus. This is the to-be-continued Four times he tells people. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't offer bumper sticker theology. Oh, this too shall pass. He doesn't offer insincere condolences. And he doesn't go, I've told you over and over and over that I'm going to fix this. Will you just trust me? He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, gosh, I, Martha, you are driving me crazy. I don't know how many times. How do I get this across to you? Tell me. No, he weeps. He enters into the suffering of his people. Christ was a man well acquainted with sorrows. Christ knew what it was like to hurt. Most scholars believe that at an early age, his earthly father, Joseph, passed away. That's why he doesn't show up much or anymore after the birth narratives of the Gospels. When Jesus first started his public ministry, his mother and brothers came and discredited his message and called him crazy. What always weirded me out about that was Mary. An angel showed up and said, you will give birth to the Son of God. And Mary shows up and goes, do not listen to him. He's crazy. He is off his meds right now. An angel showed up and told her. One of his good friends sold him out for pocket change, 30 shekels. Another one of his friends, the boldest and goofiest of them all, guaranteed Jesus that no matter what anybody else does, I'll never betray you, Lord, at Caesarea Philippi, he says it. And then three times, I do not know him, I do not know him, I do not know him. Jesus suffered under a kangaroo court. It was ridiculous. So many laws were broken in order to conduct that court proceeding. He was beaten with the cat of nine tails. He was nailed to a Roman cross for six hours on a Friday afternoon. A spear was jammed up under his ribs that pierced his heart. 
And later that day, Jesus died. He was a man well acquainted with suffering. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to feel all alone in the midst of hurt. And he enters into it with you. People of God, you do not walk alone. I don't care if your marriage is in shambles. I don't care if you were diagnosed with a terminal illness. You are not walking alone. Whatever it is, Jesus is there with you, individually, catered to your circumstances and situations. Why? Because it's the exact same reason Richard said several weeks ago. The one who knows you the best loves you the most. The one who knows you best loves you the most. Suffering is a fact of life. In fact, Eric Mason at Epiphany Fellowship Church in Philadelphia says it like this. Only three types of people in this world. One, those who are suffering. Two, those who are just exiting a season of suffering. And three, those who better watch their watch because it's coming. And when that suffering, when those circumstances and situations, that life coming at you quickly hits you, we can rest assured knowing that we're not alone in the storms of life. Jesus doesn't simply, he doesn't just, he doesn't solely enter into our suffering. There's much more to it than that. In verse 38, it says this, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. This is ridiculous. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for it has been four days. Bad odor. Well, heaven forbid I'm going to bring this man back from the dead and it's going to smell a little bit. Might have to get some Febreze. I'm sorry to burden you with that. It's interesting how in the midst of God's plan, we can focus on the little details in our sufferings, isn't it? When God is working out a plan in our lives and we're going through suffering, we get caught up on such minutia. Man, that's going to be expensive. Or that's going to make me get my hands dirty. Or there might not be showers where we're going. We get caught up on these little details. It's going to smell bad. I am raising your brother from the dead. And this is your major concern right now? 40. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. In the midst of suffering, Jesus clings to prayer. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of hurt, Christ clings to prayer. In fact, uh, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life is marked by prayer. If you look at Luke chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but there's a verse in Luke chapter 5 that is so quick, uh, we read right over it. But in Luke chapter 5, he just began his Galilean ministry. He's gaining some fame. The ball's rolling pretty quickly right out of the gate. And there are three characteristics that Luke gives that mark Jesus' early ministry. One, that he preached with power and authority, which he shouldn't have because he's, in the, he's from the middle of nowhere. Two, that he performed great miracles. And three, that Jesus was just kind of missing a lot. Like he would be late for meetings, and where we left him and we'd come back, he wasn't there anymore. Jesus found a way to always withdraw and pray. Jesus would go to lonely, secluded places. He would turn the phone off. He'd shut down the iPad and he would pray. 
If the Son of God thought it so important to pray, why don't we? I mean, if we're just being honest, and if I don't have to say what I'm supposed to say, if I can just shoot you straight here, if Jesus thought it was so important to pray, if his ministry and life was marked by prayer, why isn't ours? And yeah, we pray. We, we pray over meals. God bless this. Amen. And we pray when we see the list, God, you know, help that surgery. Amen. When was the last time you, by your bed, got down on your knees and for 10, 15 minutes prayed? When was the last time when life hit hard and hit often, you got down on the floor, you spent time, you threw the phone in another room so the beeps and the chirps of it didn't bother you, and you prayed? When was the last time you gathered your family around and you spent 30 minutes praying? Jesus thought it was important. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the weird thing is Lazarus responds. <laughs> the dead man came out, his, feet, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lazarus, after Jesus commands him, come out. this wasn't an option, this was not optional for Lazarus. Lazarus, come out of the grave. And he does. He responds. Christ doesn't leave us in our suffering. He sees us through it. That whatever your situation is right now, if you're in a marriage that's in shambles and every day is an uphill battle to love your spouse more than you love yourself, and every day there's bitterness and you feel so alone, and you think, when will this ever get better? Or every day with your children is just terrible because they don't listen and they're in trouble constantly or every day at chemotherapy is terrible and it's hard and you feel weak and you've given up hope or you just can't do another month of unemployment and you feel depressed. This is not the end for you, people of God. That whether in this life or the next, you will have your healing that Jesus holds out the words of life and the invitation for restoration. He doesn't abandon you. The constant reassurance throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that I will never leave nor forsake you. You do not walk as people who have been abandoned. I'm pleading with you this morning to believe this because I know it's hard in the midst of suffering. It's hard to remember these things. And we look up and we feel so alone and we shake our fist and go, where were you? You could have fixed all of this. You could have, we could have circumvented all of this. We suffer, and when we suffer, it produces a peculiar reliance on the grace of God, doesn't it? It drives us to the cross. Our story doesn't have an ending. It has a to-be-continued Christ is bringing his kingdom, and if you are in Christ in this room, your healing is a part of that. And what is wrong in your life, no matter how, if it seems like the new normal, if it seems like in this, on this side of things there will never be restoration, there will never be redemption, and this is just what we have to deal with, I promise you a day is coming where those tears will be wiped away, where those crying yourself to sleep nights will be no more, because he walks with us. Let's pray. Father, 
this morning we celebrate this aspect of you because suffering is hard. And some of us here are suffering with big, big things. And some of us feel so hopeless and we put on the happy face in the morning and we don't let anyone see how hurt or how insecure or how much we doubt. But God, we know that you walk with us in those things, that we're not alone, that you enter into our suffering. And so today, we might have just said the same thing several times in different ways, but I pray that our hearts would trust this, our hearts would latch hold of this, and that it would almost haunt us that we're not alone, that you're with us, Lord. So God, I, I pray, Father, that we would take comfort in these things. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Five years ago, First Pres chose to follow the call of God on our hearts to step out of our physical church and into the community around us. And one of the ways we chose to do that was by entering into partnership with Hollis Academy. As you can imagine, with Hollis Academy having 97.7% of our students living in poverty, the barriers are greater than in most other schools. First Presbyterian has sent many mentors and homeroom moms and dads. Every classroom has a homeroom mom or dad that assists the students and the teachers. I see a tremendous difference that the mentors make. It's just a weekly commitment, but I'm here and I see the students and how they look forward to that visit. After I started, I, I truly fell in love with uh, 15 brand new family members of mine who are Ms. Lanchie's uh, class and uh, I got to know most of them pretty well and it is the most rewarding thing I have ever done. Uh, I would do it for me as much as I would do it for them. First Press has made a huge impact at Hollis Academy. There's several different things that they do for us and, and it's, it's teachers and students alike, but our students, it's a trickle down effect. Our students are the ones who, who really benefit from it. I am a returning student after 17 years. I go to um, Sullivan Center over here getting my high school education. God has made a way and I just thank you for Jim Stan allowing First Presbyterian to come into my life. Without First Press, I wouldn't be in the place that I am in now. So I'm truly thankful for the blessing that I have been given. Thank you, First Press, for what you do at Hollis. One of the things we started last year uh, at Hollis is the Christmas store. We've allowed the children's parents at Hollis to come. Uh, they pay five bucks so that they feel invested in it. They can pick out probably about a hundred bucks worth of Christmas presents for their kids. One really neat experience for me was when Kevin's mom, uh, the child I mentor, came in and shopped for her, I think, six kids that were at Hollis. Uh, that's the first time that I met her. She put the connection together that I was mentoring Kevin. She was so appreciative, and I got to go alongside of her while she asked me what I thought Kevin would like, and that was just extremely special. It made both the Christmas store and the mentoring portion of my work really hit home. I'm Judy Dickey and I'm involved with the Feed the Children program at Hollis Academy. We started the program four years ago and we were sending home food with 25 students every weekend and now the program has grown to 111 children receiving the food. Thank you for sending home food with me every weekend. Thank you, First Press, for um, letting us have a room period. By entering into this relationship with Hollis, we've been able over the last five years to establish strong relationships with administrators and teachers, but also with students and families. Our desire is that they'll look back and one day they'll be able to say, that's what a Christian does. <laughs> 
That's what the Christian faith is all about. It's about love and hope. We pray daily and powerfully for every student in this school and for their families that they will know the love and the hope of God. So we invite you to come and join us in this life-changing, community-impacting ministry at Hollis Academy.